Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Moby may be one of the most highly recognizable dance music artists of all time, but he's also a talented multi-hyphenate whose unconventional 30-year career includes massive success as a producer and DJ and notoriety as an animal rights activist. Moby's latest project, Reprise, is a greatest hits album that revisits the highlights of his extensive catalog. The songs are re-recorded with the Budapest Art Orchestra and various vocalists like Jim James. Moby's most well-known electronic songs are reimagined on reprise into sparse, soul-stirring compositions. On today's episode, we'll hear Rick Rubin and Moby reminisce about their early punk rock days in New York City and the first time Moby ever heard house music while dancing in a club basement next to Prince. Moby also talks about what it was like to be buddies with David Bowie, getting sober, and why he decided to sell the big fancy castle he lived in all by himself. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin with Moby. I can tell from the window behind you that you're not in the house that I last visited you in. No, I had this, think of it like a Jay Gatsby epiphany. I was in this huge, crazy castle by myself, and I, at one point asked myself, like, why do I live by myself in a giant castle? So I sold the big crazy castle and moved to this much simpler, prettier house in Los Feliz, right by the observatory. Cool. Tell me a little bit about the experience of recognizing that moment. What was the moment like? And did it happen at once? I mean, that's the thing with epiphanies. 
and I don't know if this has been your experience, but a lot of the epiphanies I've had have taken a long time to sort of come to fruition. And when I finally have them, they're so self-evident. So it's it builds for a long time. And then once you notice it, it's like, how did it take so long for me to see the elephant in the room, essentially? Yeah, kind of like you drop a brick on your foot 300 times. And after the 300th time, you think to yourself, maybe I should stop dropping a brick on my foot. So this time I was sitting at my kitchen table in the crazy castle and I was, I don't know, checking Facebook or looking at CNN on my laptop. And I thought to myself, why do I need this giant castle to sit at my kitchen table and do emails? Because I don't have a family. I'm just one person. I was like, so why do I need a bunch of empty rooms that occasionally I go in and vacuum? So it's just a very, a very self-evident, rational epiphany. That said, I really liked that house. That crazy, that crazy castle was a really cool, crazy castle. Yeah. It amazes me a little bit that somehow I was ever able to live in a crazy, cool castle. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you did, actually. I feel like, <laughs> it, uh, I feel like if anyone gets to live in a crazy, cool, cool castle, it might as well be you. And then I had a really an odd experience with the Crazy Cool Castle after I lived in the Crazy Cool Castle is the man I sold it to had a brunch and invited me to the brunch. And this has some very funny name dropping in it. And so I went to this brunch and Robert Downey Jr. was at the brunch. So Robert Downey Jr. and I had been best friends when we were nine years old. Is that true? And I hadn't seen him since 1974. And so by my selling the giant crazy castle and then getting getting invited back to this brunch, I somehow got reunited with my childhood best friend from 1974. For some reason, I thought you grew up on the East Coast. I did in, in Connecticut. Oh, is he from Connecticut? For two years, he lived uh, in Darien, Connecticut, and then his family moved to Essex and we, I guess they might have moved back here, but we lost touch in 1974, 1975. Amazing. Do you, do you have any idea what year it was that we first ran into each other? Oh, I remember it exactly. When, when was that? It would have been June of 1983 in Stamford, Connecticut at the Anthrax. That's unbelievable. And I remember it clearly because it was a, like a sort of daytime show at the Anthrax. They had graffiti artists outside, and there was this strange show, and Hose were the headliners, and my band was one of the earlier bands. And I remember Brian and Sean, who ran the Anthrax, came to me and asked if you could borrow my amp. <laughs> I remember that. I remember, I remember borrowing your amp. That's the moment that I remember, but I didn't remember the name of the club and I wouldn't have been able to figure out when it was just because I'm not good with, with dates. But yeah. um, that's amazing that you remember that. I feel like we both came from, uh, were birthed from the same scene and we've both had interesting journeys from that start, maybe not the most obvious journeys. I've always felt a kinship, like we're, we're very much cut from the same cloth. Well, I mean, if you think about it from the Anthrax was a completely illegal punk rock club in Stamford, Connecticut. And Stamford, Connecticut has now become this global center of finance. But back then, it was sort of like 
just a burned out, rough neighborhood. And it, it was a storefront and they had a little stage in the basement. So people might be thinking that this was some sort of big, slightly more glamorous, legitimate place. Like, no, it was an anarcho syndicate punk rock club. And it was a tiny little basement, as I recall. Oh, it was minuscule, yeah. And then I remember you went to NYU with my friends Lindsay Anderson and John Farnsworth. Yes. And here's a really funny memory I have. It would have been, I guess, 1984 at some point. Lindsay, because I had just started DJing, and Lindsay came to me and asked if I knew anyone who could help her friend Rick get a DJing job. Really? Yeah, she said that she said her friend Rick was looking for DJ gigs and did I know anyone who was looking for DJs? Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Like maybe that was autumn of 85, I don't know, at some point in 1984. And then I think the next time I ran into you was at Angelica's Kitchen buying vegan food. Yeah, and there were a few there were a few other sightings over the years. Yeah. I remember when I really got into the initial surge of rave music when it was going on and feeling like the energy of the raves that I was going to, these like illegal weekend raves with, you know, tons of people out in the desert, feeling like the energy was the first new energy that I was excited by since hip hop music. And after going to many of these things and and realizing that from my perspective, which is very much music rooted in a personality, whether it be the personality of a band or the personality of a person, that was for the most part a faceless movement. And then I saw you perform in that bringing a punk rock state of theatrical performance into the rave dance world. And it was so exciting for me and it made sense. And I've also found over the years that the people who made the most interesting dance music were the people who started by making other kinds of music and then found their way into dance music as opposed to people who started in dance music, which historically, there are less cases where I find that that music interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was strange coming from a sort of punk rock new wave background and then Similar to you, in the early 80s, I got really excited by hip-hop, you know, listening to mixtapes from BLS. And then I started DJing, and I was playing all this eclectic music, you know, from hip-hop to Johnny Cash to Nitzareb to just, you know, all over the place. And house music started, and it excited me in a way that dance music never had. You know, I mean, dance music, to be honest with you, I viewed it very suspiciously up until the mid 80s, you know? And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, part of my suspicion about it, part of my apprehension around dance music was actually cultural, that it represented like cultural mores and approaches to music that were just very, for, for a white kid from the suburbs, they were just really foreign to me. But then I realized just because they were foreign, it didn't mean that I had to have the suspicion around them. And I don't know if this is, you found this to be the case, but I think that Danceteria played a big role in turning me from like a suburban white kid who just wanted to listen to Black Flag and Joy Division into someone who was open to so many different musical idioms. You know, because 
I would go to Danceteria to see the Bad Brains or to see Mission of Burma or even like a place like the Peppermint Lounge. And then the DJ beforehand would be playing hip hop and the DJ afterwards would be playing gay disco. And I was like, well, I revere this scene. So clearly I need to learn from what they're doing. You know, the, the, the incubator of lower Manhattan in the early 80s into the mid 80s really was, I don't know, I feel like in a way that that, that saved me from just being a cliched white kid from the suburbs who only wanted to listen to guitar rock from Athens, Georgia. So you're going to dance Tyria, you're exposed to dance music in a way that's relatable to you. Can you remember like your gateway drug? What was the first dance oriented artist that you felt like this is for me? That's a wonderful question because there was the sort of dance adjacent stuff that I liked but I hadn't even registered that it was dance music. You know, I remember like one of the best record buying days of my entire life was in 1982. I was in a record store in DC and I bought The Message and Minor Threat Out of Step. Good day. That's a good day. <laughs> but it hadn't even registered to me that The Message was quote unquote dance music. I was just like, I'd heard it on a, a Mr. Magic mixtape and I was like, wow, I really, like, I love the lyrics. I really love this. But the first dance track, do you know what it might have been? And part of it was because it didn't make any sense to me until I fell in love with it. Do you remember the song Set It Off by Strafe? Of course. Incredible. And I remember... Classic. Like, my friend Diana brought it to me when I was DJing. She said, you need to play this. And I was like, it's nine minutes long, no one knows it. And it was so poorly recorded and so poorly mixed, Yeah, but it was flawless. And I think that was the record where I was like, oh, something is happening here that I need to be aware of. Because this is, you know, at the time I was also listening to, you know, like nice indie rock, like Aztec Camera, mm -hmm. really pleasant guitar music. But I heard this and I was like, this is special. You know, the guitar music I'm listening to is very well made and it's good, but it's not this. Like, this is this is different and fascinating. Amazing. I know exactly what you're talking about. There was this moment in New York where there was a new form of dance music being created. I, I don't know what, what it's referred to, the subgenre. I don't know what we call it. But Strafe is a key piece of this 80s New York club music. It was going on on a parallel trip of hip-hop I don't know which was influencing which. It was very rooted in the hip hop language, but it wasn't rap music. But the beats might be interchangeable between the New York club music and the early hip hop music. And it was a really exciting time for, um, for dance music. Yeah, and then you would have these hits that were only hits in geographically tiny parts of the world. You know, like you could play, set it off by strafe and an entire room full of people would scream at the top of their lungs in lower Manhattan and you'd go 10 miles away from lower Manhattan. No one has heard this song. Yeah. You know, it was so regional and fascinating. Early house music was a little bit like that. Like there were some songs like, um, like Break for Love by Rays. I don't know if you ever knew that. It was a, an early seminal house track that was a massive hit in the house music world. In New York City. Outside of that, no one 
no one knew what it was. What's interesting also about the Strafe song, it was as big of a club song as there's ever been in New York. And for as big of a hit as it was, I'm guessing almost no one owned the record except DJs who would play it at the club. Yeah. No one had that record. You know, there there were not, fans didn't have that record because that was not the nature of that culture. You went to the club and you heard that there because that's where it was, you know, that's where that was. It wasn't meant to be listened to in your bedroom. Yeah, it was like, or you heard it on Hot 97 on a Friday night. Yeah. Or Kiss or BLS, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, that's one of the things with dance music in general, because I was, growing up, I was used to music that lived everywhere. You know, like you could listen to Led Zeppelin at a party. You could also listen to Led Zeppelin in the morning while you were making breakfast. Whereas a lot of electronic music was so, in a way, site-specific. You know, like even to this day, like there's, there's club music that I love at a big event with 50,000 people that I would never in a million years want to take into my home. Yeah. But I'm, I'm now I'm really curious about, you're right, because that genre, it was basically dance music. It was like post-disco pre-house music. Yes. And it didn't know what it was. It didn't have any, like there was no conformity to certain BPMs or anything. It was just this free-floating, slightly nebulous dance music. And it was a really fascinating time. It was a lot more experimental. Because there was freestyle, if you remember freestyle, you know, which was great, but freestyle was a very specific regimented BPM and genre. Yeah. But this would have like, this this was also the music that Madonna really blossomed out of. Like she was part of that culture and then transcended it. But that was really the early Madonna fit really into that New York dance club mode, uh, as well as like AEIOU or Evelyn Champagne King or um, Lisa Lisa. Yeah, I haven't thought I haven't thought of Lisa Lisa in such a Lisa Lisa in the cult jam because it was like yeah. she had roughly the same acronym as LL Cool J. But it's funny that you mention AEIOU by Eben Ozen because I just recently rediscovered that song and video. If you're bored, go take a look at it and read the lyrics. I would posit the strangest song in Western pop music history. Like the lyrics are so phenomenal and they make absolutely no sense. It's like a grad student dissertation on semiotics while a guy's talking about trying to pick up a girl at a cafe. Amazing. I had completely forgotten about that song. It's just, it's, but that you're right, that that weird incubator of New York that so much, so much music, so much art, so much culture came out of because it was just everybody was influencing everybody else. And it was kind of like everyone was open to everything. Yeah. It was breakdancing music before rap music. That was the music that would people would breakdance with. I want to mm-hmm. say with because you didn't really breakdance to music. You breakdance with music. Yeah. You know, I mean, think of Blondie, you know, coming out of that scene as well, going back a little bit more into the late 70s. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm really grateful that I grew up within driving distance of New York and I could be exposed to that or also within radio distance. It's also interesting that another thing that we share is that we're both suburban kids who had access to New York City, which is really different than kids who grew up in New York City. 
because the kids who grew up in New York City didn't have that suburban experience that's more rooted in America. Like our experience is much closer to what the American experience is than kids who grew up in New York City. Yeah, I was born in New York, but I grew up in Connecticut and I would meet people who grew up in the city and I would just be amazed like they were a different species. I was like, you were born like so far up the cool ladder than I will ever attain to. Yeah. Because it just seemed like the idea of that they would do normal things, especially in the 70s, you know, in the most dangerous, darkest place in the world, they would be going to elementary school. They would be having sleepovers. They would be buying ice cream. And I was like, you did that in New York? Like, how did people manage to have childhoods in New York City, you know, when you're like dodging muggers and addicts and crazy people? And from a musical perspective, something like being able to like Led Zeppelin was essentially a suburban thing. Like Led Zeppelin wasn't cool enough to listen to if you grew up in Manhattan. It was just a different taste. It was too mainstream for Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, I do remember meeting people who like by the time they were 18, if they'd grown up in the city, they were done. They were jaded. Yeah. You know, like they'd been going to clubs since they were 13. They had gone to rehab when they were 15. You know, they had started their first band when they were 16 and broken up and gotten their first record deal at 17. So by 18, they were like ready to move to New Mexico and retire. <laughs> what was the first punk show you ever saw? Oh, so this is, I made some good choices early on. Um, my first real concert was Yes at Madison Square Garden in 78. And I love Yes, unapologetically, maybe less so with the Trevor Horn era, but like early, like close to the edge, yes, I just still think it's flawless. My first punk rock show, and I got really lucky, was Fear at the Mud Club. Wow, that's a great one. I think I was there. I think I was 15 or maybe it just turned 16. Yeah. And yeah, it was... It was phenomenal. And then after that, we discovered Great Gildersleeves. We discovered A7. Because my friends and I were from the suburbs and we knew nothing. So we thought A7 was a concert venue. Um, and again, <laughs> to put it in perspective for anyone listening, A7 was another, it was a hole-in-the-wall dive. It was a bar with a little stage. And we went there to see one of my favorite punk rock bands, Kraut. Yeah. And so we thought, okay, Kraut, and maybe the Cro-Mags or Murphy's Law or someone's playing at A7. So they're like, we're going to go to A7 and see this show. We got there at 9. The venue, bar wasn't even open yet. Finally, the door is open, 9.30 or 10. We go in and we ask the bartender, do you know when Kraut are playing? And he said, well, that's my band. Turns out Dougie, the guitar player, is also the bartender. And he says, and we're probably going to go on around 2. <laughs> Keep in mind, we're 16-year-old kids from the suburbs. We didn't even know 2 a.m. existed. Like, 2 a.m., no one was ever awake at 2 a.m., like, let alone playing a show. But we stayed up, and we waited, and we saw Kraut at A7 with a bunch of other bands I don't remember. Amazing. Yeah, A7. I saw the Swans at A7. That was really good. (laughs) We could go down so many rabbit holes about genres, but that— mid to late 80s noise genre in New York, you know, Diamanda Galas and the Swans and the birthday party. And I got to see the birthday party play at the club called The Underground. Do you remember The Underground? I remember the name, but I never went there. 
Yeah, it was, it was, there would be no reason for you to go. It would, it, they had very few acts that we would ever go to see, but the birthday party happened to be playing there. So I went and they, and I was one of maybe 12 people in the room to see the show. And, uh, the plug got pulled on them after the second song. I love them. Like Prayers on Fire, I think it's just one of the most flawless records. Beautiful. But I, I actually went back and re-listened to it and it's still great, but I don't know how they came to be. Because they're from Australia, and Australia is a wonderful place. But Australia is like sunshine and blonde people and happiness, and you you just wonder like what in Australia created the birthday party. I'm glad it happened. Yeah. Have you spent much time in Australia? Yeah, I have to say. So I got sober about 13 years ago. Pre sobriety, Australia was absolutely my favorite place in the world. Like as far as a place to go out. And just be a carefree, happy-go-lucky alcoholic, Australia was pretty special. When we come back, Moby talks to Rick Rubin about getting sober. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. 
One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. We're back with more of Rick Rubin's conversation with Moby. Tell me the story of getting sober. It's similar to what we were talking about at the beginning. This sort of like the self-evident epiphany that just takes you a very long time to realize. So I'd started drinking and doing drugs when I was 10. My mom and her boyfriends used to do a lot of drugs. So I'd steal drugs from them. And then I started drinking and had bouts of sobriety, but kept drinking and doing drugs up until 13 years ago. And honestly, like the consequences of drinking and doing drugs just kept getting worse. When you're 16 years old, in fact, you might think this is funny. The first celebrity I ever met was Ian MacKay at Great Gildersleeves, Ian MacKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat. And I was so excited to meet him. I ran up to him and introduced myself. I was like, I said, my name's Moby, Mr. MacKay, just loved your band and shook his hand. I was blind drunk at the time. And Ian MacKay is the man who invented straight edge. Yes. So I just kept drinking and doing more drugs and occasionally experimenting with sobriety. And then finally, 13 years ago, after years of waking up at five in the afternoon on a daily basis, hungover and sick and despondent, I finally realized that it was time to stop. You know, I realized being sick and despondent and miserable day after day after day after day was not a good thing, which in hindsight is the most self-evident realization anyone could have. Like normally you only have to eat rotten food a few times to decide you'd no longer want to eat rotten food. I had to be sick and hungover thousands of times, thousands upon thousands of times to finally accept that being hungover and miserable was not a good way to live. I'm, I'm happy you found uh, peace <laughs> with, without that that method. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, and obviously getting sober is challenging because drinking and doing drugs becomes your sole reliable organizing principle. You know, it delivers misery, but before that, it delivers controlled happiness. So it's a very hard thing to give up the familiar, even if the familiar is destroying you. Yeah. But I am thrilled for so many reasons to no longer be a sad, embarrassing, miserable, alcoholic drug addict. Would you say that you used drugs and drinking to escape? I used drugs and drinking because, and this is something about the physiology of an alcoholic or the neurochemistry of an alcoholic. Alcohol, I love drugs a lot. Like I did any drug that was put in front of me but really my drug of choice was alcohol. And, and it's sort of interesting. Half my family is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and the other half of my family is Jewish. And what's funny is in my family, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were all alcoholics and the Jews in my family have no issue with drinking whatsoever and don't, and for the life of them can't understand why the wasps can't just drink in moderation. But for me, alcohol did everything. It was this magical drug where it calmed me down and it woke me up. Yeah. You know, it excited me. It relaxed me. It kept me awake when I needed to be awake and helped me fall asleep when I needed to fall asleep. It gave me confidence, 
but it also helped me access the surreal parts of my brain. Like there was nothing it couldn't do, but then ultimately, obviously, when you rely on anything outside of yourself, it goes wrong. How has it been coming to meet yourself after all this time? What's what's it like? It's very challenging. And I would say like anybody meeting themselves in an honest way, it's it's hard. And one of the hardest things that I was actually just thinking about recently, like one of my pandemic projects for myself, and it's going to sound fancier than it is because I haven't actually finished any of the books, was to go back and reread a lot of the books that I started reading in university because I was a philosophy major and I'd never finished any of the books I was reading. So I got like Wittgenstein, like the Tractatus and the Brown and Blue books. Um, I was reading some Schopenhauer and reading Jung and about the sort of the schism between Jung and Freud. And obviously Jung, and I'm grossly paraphrasing, but he writes a lot about the, the idea of a shadow self. And I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I thought that the shadow self was evil. I thought that the shadow self was like this, you know, the Nietzsche quote of like, don't stare too long into the void because the void might stare back into you. And like, it seems so menacing. For me, what I think I've realized is my shadow self is actually just embarrassing. Like it's the part of, like it's not some menacing Dexter style serial killer it's just, it's like an awkward adolescent. And one of the hardest things, like if I had a buried psychopath in me, I could probably make peace with that easier than I can make peace with the awkward adolescent in me. You know, like the vulnerable, human, awkward, frail part of me. That's the, like coming to terms with that and learning to like that part of yourself. I found that to be, a real challenge because I always wanted to be cool and not awkward and, you know, confident and recognizing like, okay, no, I'm not those things. And I can't have an honest assessment of self without looking at that. And before would drinking and drugs would just hide that away. You wouldn't have to face it. You would never have to acknowledge it was there. Is that correct? Oh yeah. It was like the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask. Like, all of a sudden you just became the most ideal version of yourself, at least as far as how I perceived myself. Other people were like, ew, who's that sad asshole? Like what, like he's gross. But in my mind, I was like confident and, you know, powerful. Even if outside people were looking at me like I was just some sort of like tragic, aging, bald musician, you know? But in my mind, I was like, Johnny Depp meets Orlando Bloom and the outside, you know, the outside world saw me as a little bit more like Wally Shawn in The Princess Bride. <laughs> How did drugs affect music making over the course of your life? Well, the funny thing is, and I still don't know how this, this was possible. I never once performed drunk or high. Wow. And I never drank or did drugs when I was working on music. Interesting. Like, these were the only parts of my life that were carved out. Like, I, if I was on tour, I would drink and do drugs the moment I stepped off stage. But I think there was some little part of my brain that said, no, like, you can destroy everything else. You can destroy relationships. You can destroy your health. But music is this sort of slightly 
sacred space, you cannot corrupt it. Beautiful. Although there was one time, and, and part of it was based on experience. One time I remember being out and I thought like, you know what? A lot of great artists have made great drunken records. And I, so I remember coming home from a bar at three or four in the morning and I thought, I'm going to write and record a song drunk because I've never done this before. And in the morning I listened to it and it was just bad. Yeah. Not interesting bad, not exciting bad, just garbage bad, you know, like, ugh. so that, that also helped me to never drink or do drugs when making music. How has your relationship to music changed from when you started till now? I love that question because it has actually come to a place of this of wonderful purity. Meaning in the early days, everything about the world of music was exciting. Record labels seemed exciting. Music magazines were exciting. Everything, even tangentially related to the world of music was like so phenomenally exciting. And then when I got involved in the music business, as I'm sure you can relate to, as a lot of people can, there was that sort of the straddling of how do you, how do you maintain and learn from and respond to the, like the dynamic or dialectic between art and commerce. And then once I had a degree of success, I found myself loving success. And I found myself ashamedly and sort of, and very sadly, making compromises to try and further success. I wasn't very good at it, luckily. And then I had this epiphany helped by David Lynch. I went to go see, see David Lynch speak at BAFTA in the UK. And he said something so simple he was on stage being interviewed, and he said, creativity is beautiful. It's my direct quote from David Lynch. And it just struck me. And all of a sudden, I realized, oh, he's right. Like, the marketplace is okay. Record labels are fine. There's nothing wrong with them. You know, like, marketing campaigns, selling, sure, that's fine. But music has the potential to be sublime. And I'm not even talking about my music. I'm talking about just music in general. If you think about it, the fact that music on a corporeal physical level has never existed, you know, all it is, and forgive me if I'm really stating the obvious, all it is is air molecules hitting us a little bit differently, you know, and somehow these air molecules touching us differently, it makes us cry, makes us get tattoos, it makes us jump up and down in a field with 100,000 people. It's just air moving a little bit differently. And so my long rambling answer to your question, I found myself returned to this place of like almost purity and spirituality around music, like the love of music for the sake of music. And if it has commercial viability, fine. But that's not the goal or the utility of it. It's that ability to somehow communicate emotion through moving air molecules. Like, what better way for us to spend our lives than in service of that? Yeah, it's, un it's unbelievable that we get to do it. I feel um, very blessed and lucky to get to have that be the, the thing I get to spend my time doing. And, and it is miraculous. 
and it, it's magic. And I think it must always be approached with humility because it's so much bigger than we are. You know, it really, it really is a, a tremendous, you described it in a very uh, ephemeral way. That said, it's this huge power that's really beyond us, beyond our understanding. And the fact that we get to dance around the edges of it is just a beautiful, so lucky that we get to do that. Yeah. I would say that, I mean, even my my broader spiritual understanding is sort of what you just described, is like dancing around things that we will never understand. Yeah. Whether it's nature, whether it's science, whether it's music, whether it's people at their best, but just somehow getting these glimpses of what, for lack of a better word, I guess we could call the divine. Yes, you know, and I, I don't know. When I say divine, I know that's such an. I had I had dinner with um, Sam Harris, and I think I really offended him because I was talking about the divine, and I realized in hindsight, like, oh, maybe not such a good idea to talk about the divine with one of the world's most famous atheists. But I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, you know what what you just described the un the unquantifiable that is somehow a trillion times bigger than we are, but somehow we're involved in it. Like, if there's a better word than divine, I don't know what it, like, yeah. It, it doesn't matter. It's like, it doesn't matter what label you decide to use. I know exactly what you're talking about. And so did Sam. <laughs> he was still kind of, I could tell, he was, he and his wife were a little, a little peeved that I would use that word. So I also made the mistake with them of using the word God. And in hindsight, this was my fault because, like, I think they even said, like, why would you use that word? And I thought about it and I was like, oh, you're right. Like, if ever there has a more corrupted word in human history, it's God. And if I use the word God to mean these elements I don't understand, everything we just described, clearly that's not what most people in human history have used the word God to describe. So I'm trying to back away from that word because it's so triggering, understandably, for so many people. I don't know that the word is triggering so much as the concept is triggering. And though you could label it differently to someone who would be triggered by the word, what you're talking about would still be a foreign, a foreign and perhaps offensive concept. And that's okay because we all have our own experience of life and, mm -hmm. you know, we're allowed to like some things and other people don't like them. And that's, you know, a lot of people don't like punk rock. We happen to like punk rock, you know? I like disco music. Not a lot of, you know, many people don't like disco music. It's okay. So speaking of punk rock, I'm wondering, because there there aren't too many people, and if, and if you are not going to join me in this club, that's fine, is one of the things I've done in the pandemic is I've gone down this weird rabbit hole of the loudest, noisiest, this hybrid of punk rock and speed metal. And I love it so much, and I cannot find anybody else on the planet who likes it. Even my punk rock friends don't like it. Like, there's this one band, uh, ACXDC, spelled exactly the same as ACDC, but it's they, for them it stands for Antichrist Demon Corps. <laughs> and they're these wonderful Latino vegans who live in the valley and the music they make is so, it, it's 
take the hardcore we grew up with, take Slayer, yeah, and then make it faster and harder. <laughs> Um, so much so, I sent it to Daryl from the Bad Brains, and he was like, I will not listen to this shit. Like, <laughs> please do not corrupt me with this. And some of the stuff I've gotten into reminds is starting to remind me of that, where it's like everybody in my life thinks it's unlistenable, and I love it. We have to pause for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Moby. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards, a hotel upgrade, lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Moby. What have you been listening to lately besides um, speed punk? 
the most eclectic stuff. I listen to a lot of classical music, although my interest in classical music is pretty pedestrian. Like I like classical music when it's very pretty, but also a lot. And I'm also a little bit ashamed because none of this is new, but a lot of old new wave from like 78 until about 84, you know, from early Devo to early Robin Hitchcock, Blondie I've been rediscovering. One band I'd forgotten about completely who I've realized I love, and, and I also feel like they were performance artists, was The Cars. I want to reference something recent. I don't want to just be another, like just just an old guy on Spotify listening to music from childhood, but the truth is I'm an old guy from Spotify, uh, on Spotify listening to music from my childhood usually. Let's talk about the cars for a minute, because as you talk about them, I think about the vocal style of the cars that was different than music that had come before it. Do you have any idea what the lineage of that might have been? Not really, although the only thing I can think of is that they were from Boston, and I don't know if they were inspired by the Modern Lovers and Jonathan Richmond at all. That's interesting. But there is, like, you listen to, like, the directness of a song like Pablo Picasso maybe influenced Rick Ocasek and the Cars. I don't know. Yeah. I was I was thinking maybe, and I never made the connection before this conversation, but I was thinking maybe Bowie. I mean, everybody who <laughs> was smart enough to figure it out was influenced by Bowie. I feel like some people like Rick Ocasek might have been like, he wasn't a good enough singer to be David Bowie, but could still employ that sort of, you know, the, the theatricality and the phrasing. And maybe because a little bit of, you know, Iggy Pop, because there was a similar sort of like Midwestern drawl aspect to it. And I think Iggy was really often channeling um, Lou Reed, I think. I, like, I think that's the lineage. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I know that David Bowie was obsessed with the Velvet Underground. And in fact, I actually had dinner with David and Lou once. It was one of those moments that it still doesn't seem like it should have existed in the realm of possibility. Yeah. Like walking to David Bowie's apartment to have dinner with David and Lou. Incredible. Yeah. Growing up listening to musicians who, you know, and, and deifying them and then time passes. And I'm sure you've had this experience more than anyone becoming friends with and working with your heroes. I feel like at this point, you've done that so many times, you must be relatively comfortable with the process. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> it's it's still, <laughs> I mean, it's still unbelievable anytime I'm lucky enough to be around anyone who makes something great. So it's exciting. And honestly, it's maybe more intimidating when you grew up listening to them, but it's equally exciting when it's a young artist even making their first or second project, but you see that level of originality and sophistication and um, next level thinking in their work. It, it, do you know what I'm saying? Like the excitement of being around really creative people, it's always thrilling. Can you, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot. Can you name names, like people who stand out when you think of that? Well, I can tell you, like, in terms of people that have been around where I feel intimidated, it'd be like, you know, Neil Young is 
intimidating to be around, even though there's nothing about him that's intimidating, but he's on such a high pedestal in my life that I'm on edge when I see him. Do you know, it's funny, sorry for interrupting, but I, a few years ago, I was at a gallery event with Shepard Ferry and Shepard asked me, he said, oh, Neil Young is here. Do you want to meet him? And I actually said, no. Yeah. And I was like, and the reason being is like, I'm sure that he's wonderful. I'm sure he's a delightful human being. But what if I catch him at a bad moment? And what if for a brief second, he's a dick to me? And I was like, that compromises my ability to love after the gold rush and helpless. And I was like, I was like, I'm not willing to potentially jeopardize those songs for me. Yeah. And so it's the one time I chose not to meet one of my heroes in the interest of making sure that I didn't compromise my ability to unconditionally love these songs. No, understood. With, I mean, some people are so iconic, for better or worse, that it's hard to remember that they're real humans. Yeah. Um, I had a, a similar weird experience. I played a fundraiser once and Paul McCartney was playing on the bill. And he was sound checking and he sound checked with Hey Jude. And so it's just him at the piano playing Hey Jude, no band, nothing. And I sat 10 feet away from that and I was like, oh, he wrote this. Like there was a day when in the morning this song didn't exist. And at some point during the day, he wrote this song, this song, which it, it seems like an, it's such, I mean, a song like that's so iconic that it seems like no one ever wrote it. It was just sort of like, carved from granite at some point yes forever it's been it's been here forever yeah it, there's there was no world before that and so being able to say like i can't believe that there is actually like a flesh and blood person attached to this and obviously it's not even my favorite beatles song but it was just this moment of like the cognitive dissonance of oh these some of these people are actually humans. Like, they're not gods. They're not cartoon characters. Like, I went on tour with David Bowie, and I remember the last night of the tour, In we were at the Gorge outside Seattle, and he was backstage, and he was so delightful and goofy. Like, we'd spent a ton of time together, but this was the first time I had seen him at his most unguarded. Like, he was sweaty. He just had a wonderful show, and he was human almost going back to what we were talking about earlier, like the shadow self, like this might've been like his shadow self because it was childlike and delightful, you know, like maybe a part of him that he didn't want people to see that much. And it was so endearing and so lovely. And I was like, I, this is David Bowie. Like this is the greatest musician of all time. And he's acting like a super lovely, goofy 14 year old right now. How did you come to meet him originally? Well, I actually met him for the first time at a Nine Inch Nails party, but we didn't really get to talk much. And then in 1999 or 2000, he emailed me and he said, hi, it's, Mo uh, it's David. I got your email address from someone at my record company. I'm moving into an apartment on Lafayette Street, and I think we're going to be neighbors. And so he, we lived across the street from each other, and we became friends. We would get coffee together. We spent holidays together. We worked on music together. We toured together. 
Can I tell you one of my favorite, favorite David Bowie stories? Please. Okay. So we had agreed to play a fundraiser for Philip Glass's Tibet House. And so he came over to my apartment one morning. He stopped at Cafe Gitan to get coffee. So he came over with coffee and we sat on my sofa and I worked up all my courage and I said, what if we play an acoustic version of Heroes at this fundraiser? And I thought he was going to say, no, no, how dare you suggest that? And instead he said, sure, why not? So he sat on my sofa, just the two of us, and played this very slow, pretty, quiet version of Heroes. And it was like just one of the most wonderful moments of my life. And then afterwards, tying it back to Lou Reed, David told me that Heroes was originally written as a cover version of Waiting for the Man. Wow. Dun, 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 dun. I'm waiting for the man. We, we would be, you know, so... That was amazing. That's my favorite David Bowie story. Fantastic. Actually, no, I have a second favorite David Bowie story, but it's much. Let's hear it. It's more nuanced. Okay, let's let's hear it. I was at his apartment, and he had a very small studio in his apartment, and he wanted to play me something. And I was like, okay, great. He said, he said it's a song I'm working on. I'd love your opinion. And I, first of all, just to put that in perspective, like I'm at David Bowie's apartment and he wants to play me a song to get my opinion. Like, that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Like, I'm supposed to be maybe like cleaning the toilets in the apartment adjacent to David Bowie's apartment, not in his apartment. But he plays me this song and it's the most beautiful David Bowie song ever. Um, it's called Slip Away and it's on the album Heathen. And it's, I would say the most personal song he's ever written. It's actually inspired by his love, like his love with Iggy Pop, like, you know, friendship, whether it was more than friendship, I don't really know, but like, it's this beautiful love song. And it is so emotional. And I, that moment of just sitting in his studio where he played the CD, the demo of this song for me, and he was nervous. And it was done, and I was like, David, I said, that might be the most beautiful song you've ever written. How did he react to that comment? You know, it's funny, because we never talked about music. If I remember, he, he responded a little formally and in a polite way, which is the same way I respond to people telling me about music. Like, I, he almost, like, he took it in, but I could tell a sort of a wall came up. I think he felt exposed, because it... If you think about it, most of his music is not personal. It's beautiful. It's phenomenal. But rarely did he write personal songs. You know, they're very theatrical. I mean, even Heroes. Heroes was written about Tony Visconti. Um, and this song, Slip Away, is so personal. And I think it, I, I think I saw his defenses come down because he realized he was being perhaps a little too vulnerable. Yeah. What was the greatest dance music experience you've ever had out in the world? Okay, there are going to be two of them. One was the first time I heard house music loud in a club. I think it would have been 88 or 89. I was at Nell's and I was in the basement. I was dancing next to Prince 
the only time I ever saw Prince in person, he was dancing next to me in the basement of Nell's. And the DJ, who I think was Frankie Iglesias, played A Day in the Life. And I, it sounded like the heavens opening up. The second was in about 2007, no, maybe 2008, I got asked to DJ at an Electric Daisy Carnival. And I had been sort of ignoring what I was, as like, I, I'd sort of been ignoring the dance music, quote unquote, underground for a while. So I was asked to DJ at this, what I thought was just like an outdoor, small outdoor rave. And so much so that when my, my manager asked me if I wanted to DJ at this, he said, oh, there's a rave in Los Angeles. Do you want to DJ at it? And my response was, they still have raves? And so I thought, I don't know, I'm going to a field, there'll be a thousand people. It was in the USC stadium and there were 75,000 people. And it was so stunning like to expect nothing and to have an underground event with 75,000 people in a sports stadium. And the level of joyful enthusiasm like there were just a couple of records that I played that were so euphoric and to have 75,000 people responding in kind. I mean, that's happened many times, but something about this was just really special. Amazing. Do you do any type of a spiritual practice? For most of my life, I was a sort of, I, I would think of it as almost like a spiritual dilettante. Sometimes out of curiosity, sometimes out of a desire to not piss off whatever deity might be out there. But for most of my life, I realized that my spirituality was largely trying to figure out who I agreed with, like which, which spiritual tradition I agreed with or which spiritual writer did I agree with. And then I had this another sort of epiphany, and it was a weirdly emotional epiphany. And I don't even, I might even get emotional again. I was taking Amtrak from New York down to DC, and it was one of those morning trains where like people are eating breakfast, et cetera. And I was looking around, and there were all these unhealthy business people like drinking Coke, eating bacon. And I had this thought. I was like, oh, nature, the universe cares about us so much. It's even trying to heal these people. Like these people who do nothing but punish themselves, these people who eat nothing but poison, the universe loves them. Like it's in, and it's trying to heal them. And actually, sitting on Amtrak, I started crying with that thought. And I remember like going through the marshland, the meadowlands in New Jersey, looking out at the marsh. And I was like, it was similar to looking at the businessmen. I was like, here's this marsh that we've done nothing but pour toxic chemicals into, and life is still coming through it. So my spiritual practice is best described as trying to connect with whatever that source might be trying to have an understanding of it, trying to recognize that its will, like I don't want to anthropomorphize it, but if it has a will, 
it probably has omniscience and perspective much greater than I do. You know, I'm a short-lived, flawed, weird, bald guy. Like, I don't know anything. So if there is a universe with a will, it probably makes sense to seek its will rather than try and impose my will on it. Yes. Beautiful. So that's my spiel. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about the new album, or let me start by saying I listened to it this morning as I was on my morning walk, and um, it really took my breath away. I think it's really a beautiful album, and I'm so glad you made it. Well, thanks. So it's an orchestral greatest hits album. I wouldn't know how else to describe it. And the selfish part of me wanted to make it because I'd never made a record in this way. You know, working with a string quartet, working with a gospel choir, working with an orchestra, working with, you know, only live, non for the most part, non-electronic instruments. But the other part was just the love, and we were talking about Neil Young earlier, like the love of acoustic and orchestral music and how, I don't know, how effective, not to be too clinical, but how effective orchestral and acoustic music can be in delivering emotion. You know, because ultimately that's the utility of music is delivering emotion. And um, I wanted to see what that was like to try and use these elements to create something that hopefully was... Yeah, so that's that was the reason behind it. And um yeah, and being able to get all these different performers. I mean, obviously the person whose voice on the record I'm a little I'm most in love with is Chris Christofferson. Yeah. Similar to I've actually compared it to Johnny Cash's version of Hurt where when you hear a voice that's the product of experience, you know, a voice that has lived experience, it makes you not want to listen to children anymore. You know, like, like after listening to the, this song from Chris Christofferson with Mark Lanigan, who also has a voice of experience, the idea of going and listening to 19-year-old pop singers just doesn't seem as compelling. Yeah. You were on mute records for a long time, yes? I still sort of am. I've been on mute records somewhere in some form for now almost 30 years. This record is on Deutsche Grammophon because it just, they asked, and it seemed like if you're going to make a large, like a record based around an orchestra, why not make it with the oldest, most venerated orchestral music label in the world? So, and I have to say, because when I was 19, I worked in a record store and I would unpack the boxes and there would be the records that had the Deutsche Grammophon logo on them. And I was like, this is so fancy. Like, this yeah. is from Europe. And they're like, "These, this is, wow, this is so much more legitimate than these other records. And I just recently got the vinyl of this album and I saw the Deutsche Grammophon logo on one of my records and it just, it definitely not what you expect as someone who used to play in a hardcore punk rock band in a basement of illegal anarchist clubs in Stanford, Connecticut. It's great. Thank you for doing this. Amazing. Oh, this was so much fun. I it, I had sort of even forgotten that we were recording this. Yeah. I feel like we have a million things to talk about forever. <laughs> Thanks to Moby for sharing so many great stories from his career. To hear his new album, Reprise, and our favorite Moby tracks, 
head to brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.